Uh, if you uh, uh, keep your Bibles open to that passage that we just read, we're starting a new series in, in Luke today, which you'll be continuing the weeks ahead. Uh, there's an outline of the talk, which you can uh, follow along, and you can jot down anything you find helpful on there. As we come to God's Word, let's, uh, let's turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you for giving us your word that we might have salvation through your son. As we consider your word now, help us to meditate on it, to understand it, and by your Holy Spirit, let it bear fruit in our lives. Help us to recognize Jesus in all his power and glory and respond rightly to him so we may be prepared for his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, being prepared is essential for life. Uh, If you're uh, Chinese, you're probably well uh, acquainted with the preparations for Chinese New Year. It's extravagant, cleaning, cooking, decorating, inviting. There's important people coming to visit, and so you need to prepare. Perhaps there's nothing more important to prepare for than the visit of the mother-in-law, or potential mother-in-law. I remember the first time I came to Malaysia to meet my future mother-in-law. I was terrified. And for months, I planned out every detail of the meeting. What would I wear? What would I say? What gifts would I bring to appease the anger of taking her daughter? I ironed my clothes for the first time. I combed my hair. (laughs) Anything to make a good impression. We all know that being prepared is very important. And whether it's a job interview or taking exams or the wedding proposal, to not prepare, well, that would be disastrous. Now, one of my college friends learned this lesson the hard way. Uh, He got married about uh, a few months ago and he arrived at the church one hour before the wedding was to start. He went to change to put on his wedding suit, only to discover he had no pants. <laughs> he left the pants at home. <laughs> Can you imagine it? You walk in, the bride's walking up the aisle. He's there dressed in his suit and shorts. <laughs> it would have been a disaster but for the speeding of his friends to go and get them from home, and it was all okay. Now, the question that I want to ask today is this, and it's a question of Luke's chapter 3. Are we prepared to meet Jesus on the judgment day? Are we prepared to meet Jesus on the judgment day, to turn up unprepared for that day? Well, that would be truly disastrous. The good news about the passage today is it tells us how we can prepare. And it's all about this word repentance. Now you see it there in uh, verse 3, if you can have a look there. John goes about proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, a real change of mind leading to a radical change of direction. Repentance, our passage tells us today, is essential preparation for meeting Jesus on the judgment day. Uh, well, like I mentioned, we're uh, beginning a new series in Luke today. 
Uh, if you're just joining us, Luke is a really great book because it tells us all about who Jesus really is. And Luke tells us right at the beginning that he's an investigative historian. His goal is to consult all the eyewitness accounts, the people who saw Jesus and heard Jesus, to to write an authoritative record of who Jesus is and why it matters for us. His goal was as we read these words, we might have certainty about who Jesus is and how we respond And I think it's interesting as we begin in verse 1, you see the detail uh, that he goes to in preparing. He he lists in detail the the international, the national, the the local, the spiritual context of what's going on. Uh, There's there's Caesars, there's Pilate, there's, there's all of these leaders, including the high priest. He wants us to know we're not dealing with myth or legend as we read these words. These words in Luke chapter 3. We can date almost exactly to around 29 AD by the Jordan River. But here, at the beginning of this new section of Luke's Gospel, Luke wants us to be absolutely convinced of one thing. And that thing is that repentance is essential preparation for salvation. Repentance is essential preparation for salvation. He goes to so much detail because he wants us to know the exact significance of this day when John went out to preach. See, what Luke is most concerned about is what is there at the end of verse 2, what God is doing at this time. We read, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It had been nearly 400 years since the end of the Old Testament that the word of God had been spoken. But here it is spoken again in a way that has significance for all people in all places. This is a word that is at the centre of history and that God wants us to hear. And what is that word? Again, verse 3, John went into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance, as I mentioned before, is a, is a real change of mind leading to a radical new direction. Uh, you might like to think of it in this way. Last time I tried to drive to Kenneth's house, uh, I somehow ended up on the Max Highway heading towards Putrajaya. <laughs> this is a long way from his house. When I realised, what did I do? I went through the toll, did a 180 turn, went through the toll again, and then came all the way back. That's repentance. Doing a 180 turn, realising you're going the wrong way and turning all the way back and going the other way. Repentance. Now let us be clear that repentance is, is not some sort of work that we do to earn our salvation. Uh, Repentance uh, is something that is initiated by God. It is something that is enabled by God. We'll mention that a bit later. But nevertheless, we need to be for sure of this, that there can be no forgiveness of sins without repentance. There can be no forgiveness of sins without repentance. Now, I guess for many of us, this idea of repentance is probably a pretty strange idea. 
Uh, repentance doesn't happen much in society. Uh, I remember watching all the news about MH370. Uh, when it disappeared, you didn't see anyone putting up their hand to take the blame. There was no repentance in what happened there. It's the same with, with often with parents or business leaders. You make a mistake, but you don't own up to what you've done. There's no repentance. And sadly, it's often the same in the church, isn't it? And sometimes we preach the gospel and we say, if you put your faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. And of course, that is right, isn't it? But we do not tell people that faith involves repentance. And that when you turn to Jesus as your saviour, you also need to turn to him as your Lord and, and leave behind the old life and turn towards him. Uh, John says we need to have repentance, a real change of mind leading to a radical new direction if we're going to have salvation. Now this message is nothing new. And so Luke takes us back to Isaiah chapter 40. Now again, Isaiah chapter 40 is one of those key chapters in the Old Testament. It was the turning point for God's people. Isaiah announced a time when God would comfort his people who had gone to exile in Babylon, when God's judgment would be over, when finally forgiveness and restoration would come. When was that time? We see in verse 4, which Luke quotes for us in, uh, in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways. And Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. But Luke quotes the, the Greek Old Testament and summarizes it like this, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God's glory and salvation was going to be seen when God returns, when he made a way through the desert to redeem his people once again. Uh, it happened initially when he brought them back from Babylon to Jerusalem, but it looked forward to a wonderful time, an ultimate fulfillment, when the Lord himself would step into this world and bring salvation for you and me. Our world desperately needs salvation, doesn't it? It's a, a place full of chaos. And yet, when God comes, he's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring restoration. So, of course, we need preparation. If we frantically prepare when we have our family members come or when our mother-in-law comes to visit, how much more when the sovereign creator of the universe decides to, to come and dwell in our midst, to break into human history and to offer us salvation, forgiveness, restoration. How much more do we need to be ready? Isaiah says, drastic, earth-moving preparation is required. Flattening, filling, leveling, straightening... It's all metaphorical language about making uh, the way ready, making the way ready even in our hearts. If the Lord Jesus is coming, 
that we need to prepare with repentance. But just to press home the point, let me just tell you, this is not only John the Baptist's message. This is the message all throughout the gospel. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The end of Luke, summarizing the message uh, for the nations, Jesus says, repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed to all nations. Acts chapter 2, the crowd asks, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of of your sins. Repentance is essential preparation for salvation for salvation. The Lord is coming and in his grace he wants to offer us forgiveness. But repentance is essential if we are to receive it. Well point point number 2. In verse 7 to 14 we see something of the why and the how of repentance. John says repentance is essential because judgment is coming. Repentance is essential because judgment is coming. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to, to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise even from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now you can imagine John being one of those fiery Irish preachers yelling in a loud voice. Repentance is essential because judgment is coming. It's true, isn't it? There is a day coming when every one of us will stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives. It is a terrifying thought, isn't it? He knows everything. The reality is, isn't it, that none of us could stand before him without having our sins forgiven. We desperately need to turn to Jesus, don't we? If we are going to have any hope on that day. It seems here as if some of the Jews thought, we'll be fine. We're Jews. We have the promises of God. We have circumcision. Judgment's never going to come to us. We're God's people. We're okay. He'll protect us. How complacent. How self-deluded. John wakes them up. You brood of vipers. If if you don't repent, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of the devil. It's stark words. If you really understood what my message was about, then you would repent and you would show it in your life. Because if you don't, God is going to cut you down and toss you into the fires of judgment. I think what we see here is that real repentance, real repentance, has to show itself 
in concrete action. Our religious heritage, our ancestry, they're, they're, they're irrelevant when it comes to salvation. Now, there's no point in being baptised but not living a changed life. Uh, there's no benefit in belonging to a Christian family and yet failing to respond to God personally for yourself. Uh, the very act of baptism shows that, doesn't it? That there's, there's nothing theoretical about being plunged under the water. Uh, it's a deeply personal thing. Uh, even more so at the time, to be baptised was the way that Gentiles, converted Gentiles, became Jews, became God's people. But John tells the Jews, you need to be baptised too. You need to repent as well. Uh, there's no privilege that can exempt you from repentance. Uh, you might go to church. You might have Christian parents. You might be the minister's children. All wonderful privileges. We might have been baptised or confirmed. But none of those things mean anything if we do not personally and individually make that decision to make a 180 degree turn, the turn of repentance, and let our life be radically transformed by Jesus. I think there's a lot of people who can attend churches regularly, even for many years, maybe your whole life, but they've never made the decision individually, personally, to respond to Jesus, to repent, to leave behind the old life with its priorities, with its, with its ways, and to personally follow Jesus as my Lord, as my Saviour. Is that you today? Is that you? If it is, John says to you, you're in grave danger. The axe is at the root of the trees. Judgment is coming. Unless you repent personally, judgment will come on you. Of course, the gospel is good news though, isn't it? Because if we do repent and accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, God in his grace gives us forgiveness gives us salvation and he will change our life. And secondly, verse 10 to 14, real repentance is radical and practical. See what John says? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, in fact, at the end of this section, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus will say the same thing. And no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. That's pretty obvious. Uh, you don't see durians growing on an orange tree. <laughs> Oranges grow on orange trees. Durians grow on durian trees. That's how it works. Your life will prove whether your repentance is real. You might claim to be a Christian, but it's your life that will show the truth or otherwise of your claim. If, if your life is not radically transformed by the gospel, if there are sins in your life that you're not willing to repent of, there are parts, are flaws in your character that you're not willing to change, then maybe your repentance is not real at all. 
Because real repentance will show in your actions. Real repentance will produce the fruit of repentance. Whatever our calling, whether we are lawyers or accountants, chefs, mothers, anything else, repentance should change the way that we live our life. Uh, And we see John here outlining very practically what repentance means for everyday life. You see verse 10? The crowds asked him, "What, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. It's very, very practical, isn't it? The crowds, for the crowds, repentance meant it should impact their wardrobes, should impact their dinner table. They were to be generous with their possessions, not selfish. Uh, For the tax collector, repentance meant leaving behind a life of of greed and corruption to be honest and fair. Uh, You might remember how Zacchaeus, the little man Zacchaeus, put this into practice. When he was converted, he gave away 50% of his wealth and then also, on top, paid fourfold to those he cheated and didn't cheat anymore. The soldier... For him, repentance meant a refusal to intimidate or extort, to crush others for personal benefit. Do you see how being a Christian should shape very practically everyday life? I wonder if we could do a QC check of our own lives here today. Let's have a look at these three. Generosity. Are you a generous person? Who do you give money to? How often? Do you give money to charity? Do you give money to the church? Uh, Do you give money to the beggar that you walk past at the LRT station? Justice. Are you a just and honest person? In In a land full of fake sales reports, false accounts, ripping off clients, lying about our tax, pressing our workers, do you engage in those practices? Or does your repentance show in the way you do business, in the way that you do your tax return? Just, uh, sorry, extortion, contentment. How do you treat those that you have power over? How do you treat your mates? How do you treat the foreign workers that, live, that work in your company? Even in the Old Testament, slaves and animals got a day off every week. And yet how often do our maids have a day off per week? Do you give bribes? Do you accept bribes? Are you content with your wages? Or do you always need more, even if you have to trample others or do illegal things to get it? Of course we could add to the list, isn't it, for every profession. As a mother, how do you, how do you love your children? As a driver... Do you drive patiently or not? As a lawyer, do you tell the truth? I mean, we could go on. It doesn't matter which part of life. Repentance should transform radically 
every part of our life. Someone should be able to look at your life and see, yes, he is a Christian, because I can see it. Does your life show the fruits of repentance? God has a very stern warning for us here, isn't it? A phony faith will not get you into the kingdom of God. If we are not practically and radically changed by the gospel, then we must be aware there is every possibility that we're not actually a Christian at all. Maybe it is that we have never actually really repented and turned to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Or thirdly, uh, verse 15 to 18, repentance is essential because of who Jesus is. Uh, John's whole, uh, uh, the whole role of John, wasn't it, was to prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And in verse 15 to 17, we get a wonderful picture of who Jesus really is. Firstly, Jesus is the greater one, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John was a great prophet. John was the greatest of prophets, according to Jesus. But John was nothing compared to Jesus. Now, untying someone's sandals was the most menial job. Only a slave did that in those days. And yet John, the great prophet, recognises he is totally unworthy even to do that for the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus, who demands us to worship him, is the divine Lord of all, come into this world with salvation. Secondly, Jesus' baptism is a greater baptism. Verse 16 again, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to, to get lost with the symbol and forget what it points to. Uh, John baptised with water, but we all know that uh, water can't really cleanse what's inside you. It's a superficial kind of cleansing. Now, the good news here is when it comes to repentance... We do not have to depend on our own strength to do it. It's not as if I need more willpower to try harder to live God's way. Uh, you may be thinking as I, if I've been talking to you, Tim, you don't know my life. Now, you don't know what I've been going through. I've, I could never repent. I've been doing this all my life. I've been trying so hard all my life. How could I stop cheating in my business? How could I stop worshipping my ancestors? What would people think? How could I stop being proud and selfish? It's all too hard. You don't know what my heart is like. But isn't it wonderful news here? Jesus can baptise with the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is the one that initiates and enables us to respond to God. God himself living in us gives us the power to live for Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We can repent. We can change. Because God calls us and enables it to happen.
But it's also a baptism of fire, isn't it? Why fire? People debate this a lot. I think it's because fire is something that refines. When you put something in the fire, it's either destroyed or it's purified. One or the other. Uh, And we see here, when this mighty Lord Jesus brings this greater baptism, it's either going to refine you and make you pure and repentant, or it's going to destroy you. See in verse 17, this terrifying picture, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. With this winnowing shovel, with the gospel, Jesus is sifting and dividing all the world into two groups of people. There's the chaff that reject him and they're blown away and tossed to everlasting destruction. And there's the wheat, refined, pure, who are gathered into God's eternal kingdom. The stakes are pretty high, isn't it, when it comes to Jesus? How we respond to Jesus will determine our eternal future. Are you prepared to meet this Jesus who will sift us who will judge us. This is the gospel message. You see that in verse 18. With many other exhortations, John preached the good news, the gospel, to the people. Might sound strange, isn't it? What sort of good news is this? A message of repentance and judgment. Yes, this is the gospel. The gospel is a message of forgiveness, of salvation, of entry into the kingdom of God, but it is also a gospel that includes salvation from eternal judgment, from punishment. I wonder if this is the gospel that you preach. I know often it's it's not what I'm tempted to, to say when I'm talking to people. It's a lot easier, isn't it, to have a gospel which you talk about God's love, and the blessings that he gives us, and so on and so forth. But we need to, to realise, don't we, only a gospel that includes judgement and real repentance will actually ever be, be uh, effective. If you remove God's judgement, then why repent? Uh, there's going to be no radical transformation in life. Without, without, without judgement... And repentance, why do you need the cross? Because sin doesn't matter at all. In the end, a gospel without judgment is not good news, is it? But this gospel does divide us. It offers salvation, but it warns of judgment. How will we respond to this Jesus and this gospel? Will we repent or will we reject Before we finish, I thought we'd think very briefly about what might actually stop us from really repenting to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and letting him change our life. I think often in life we're forced to come to terms with hard truths, isn't it? Uh, might be the performance review of our boss. It might be the, the doctor telling us the diagnosis. It might be our 
husband or wife telling us what we're really like. Might be the rebuke of a friend. They're hard to hear, aren't they? And it's easier to just shut our ears and block it out. The gospel is one of those hard truths. The gospel calls us to admit our utter failure to please God, to leave behind our old life of sin, and to hand over our life completely to serving Jesus as our Lord from now on. It's a hard truth. And there are strong pulls that make us want to reject it. I think we see uh, two of these things at work in the tragic story of Herod that, that rounds off the chapter. See verse 19. Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. And he added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Uh, Herod was an evil man, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Not only was Herodias actually his brother's wife, it was also his niece. Uh, This was a situation of gross immorality. But faced with the challenge of the gospel, which, by the way, confronts even a king, with his heart exposed, Herod refuses to repent. Why? Was it pride? Was it that it was just too hard to face the facts? Imagine a king admitting this evil in the front of his people. It would cost too much to lose faith like that. Was it that he just loved the sin too much? He couldn't give up Herodias. He didn't want to change. We're faced with a similar choice to Herod, aren't we? Faced with our sin, will we shut our ears? Will we get away the messenger and lock him up? Will we walk away from here unchanged, rejecting the gospel? Or will we let it transform our life and bring salvation. Verse 17 tells us, isn't it, our choice has drastic consequences. If we repent, we'll be the wheat gathered into the kingdom. If we don't, if we reject, like Herod, we'll be the chaff tossed into the unquenchable fire. It's a terrible picture. It's a picture of torment that never ceases, a place where God's blessings can never, ever be enjoyed. Judgment Day is coming. Jesus came the first time, isn't it? He showed himself as Lord. One day he will return again, and all of us will stand before his judgment throne. Are we prepared to meet Jesus on that judgment day? Our passage tells us the only way to be prepared is to repent, to make a real change of mind, to go into a radical new direction, a personal decision to leave behind our old life and to live for Jesus. That kind of repentance will show in a transformed life, in every part of life. And of course, we should not omit the promise For those who genuinely and truly repent, the Lord comes with salvation, with forgiveness, and he will gather us into his kingdom. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that at this point in history, you came in the person of your Son. We thank you that Jesus came in all his glory, bringing salvation, bringing forgiveness, bringing restoration. Father, we pray that you would so work in our hearts that we would repent, that we would turn to him as our Lord and Saviour and accept the forgiveness that he offers. Father, we pray uh, for all of us here that your gospel might transform our lives in every area of life. May your gospel bear much fruit that all people can see that we belong to you. We thank you for the warning of the judgment to come. We pray that you would gather many people and save many people from it, perhaps even our own friends and family. But we thank you also for your promise that one day for those who turn to Jesus, that we will have forgiveness, we will have salvation, we will have eternal life with you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.